0: Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS. Technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the biggest issues of all time, is a financial instrument, debt or equity? The big debt equity debate. And I'm joined today by one of our partners from the Middle East, Helen Wise. Welcome to the studio Helen. Thanks Ruth. Okay so let's start just understanding why this is such a hot topic. Why is it such a challenge?
1: Depends on how much time we have to discuss the topic today. Only 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really challenging topic. It's relatively straightforward if you have a vanilla debt instrument, and generally ordinary shares are also quite easy. But it's that part in the middle that gets a bit complicated, and that's what really makes it one of the most complex areas under IFRS today.
0: And why is that so important?
1: Well, it is really important to get the classification right in the financial statements for many reasons, because it determines how it should be recognised and measured in the financial statements. Now, you can understand if it's a debt instrument, it could cause quite a lot of volatility in the income statement. You'll have higher interest charges. More importantly, if it is debt, it actually impacts a lot of the key ratios that investors look at today. So if you think about your debt equity ratios, leverage ratios, interest cover, all those liquidity ratios... Getting those wrong could have quite a significant impact. And those are key things that investors look at today.
0: Yeah, so it's not just recognition and measurement is very different, which impacts your PL. It's actually, well, this could affect, you know, what my investors look at, what my lenders look at, and all those sort of things as well. So it's a wider implication. Okay, so how do I decide then? Easy question. How do I decide if something's debt or equity?
1: Well, I think it's a good question. It's not, <laughs> it's definitely an easy, not easy answer. <laughs> Um, But to keep it really simple, if a company does not have an unconditional right, and it's really important that it's an unconditional right to actually avoiding either cash or another financial asset, to actually settle that contractual obligation, the contract would be a debt instrument. Obviously, if they have the unconditional right to avoid delivery of cash or another financial asset, It's an equity instrument. Okay,
0: so um, that's how the first thing we're looking overall is there this unconditional right. What about the scope of financial instruments?
1: Now, that's actually a really important question to actually consider the scope. Why that's important is, for example, if you're dealing with employees, you need to understand first if that's a share-based payment. Share-based payments are all scoped out of IS32, and you wouldn't do a debt equity classification in accordance with the requirements of debt equity. The other thing to just be careful of is regulatory or legal or, you know, all those obligations from local laws and so forth. Those would also be scoped out. Debt equities are all around what is the contractual obligation. So it's quite key to understand the rights and obligations per you know, in this financial instrument if they relate to a contract.
0: Okay. So that's really useful. So IFRS 2, we've got another podcast on, even though Helen loves IFRS 2, so I won't let her speak about that. Um, so we need to make sure of the scope of the standard. Then you mentioned there about contractual obligations. Do we ever think about economic compulsion?
1: Yeah, that's another good question, and it's probably best explained by an example. But if a company has issued a non-redeemable, subordinated bond with a fixed 6% interest, but that interest can actually be deferred indefinitely, then we, we often ask ourselves if a company has always paid interest each year and the bond's price is determined on that basis. The company has even publicly stated that they have a policy that they'll pay interest. question arises, is that a contractual obligation? Now, even though there's pressure on the company to make that payment of the fixed dividend, to maintain that actual bond price, It's a constructive obligation, and there's no actual contractual obligation to make payments. So in this particular case, that would be an equity instrument. So we we do not look at economic compulsion. I think the board actually looked at that a couple of years back, um, and it was clearly indicated that... It's contractual obligations and you ignore economic compulsion.
0: Okay, so whenever you're having a discussion around this and someone goes, yeah, but I'm not planning on paying it back or I am playing it, that's totally irrelevant. It's basically what the contract tells us. Yes. Okay, really important um, point for us to take away there. So we said originally, you know, if you've got a plain vanilla debt instrument, it's easy. If you've got an ordinary share, generally it's easy. What are the one instruments we need to look out for that are most problematic?
1: Well, the list is quite long, but I think the normal culprits are probably preference shares and any other class of equity other than the ordinary shares. uh, Liabilities which may be converted into ordinary shares. Shares that allow the investor to put those shares back to the company at a point in time for cash. And even derivatives on own equity instruments that the company may issue or enter into.
0: Okay, I must admit, from my experience, one part of our uh, role is looking at companies, you know, that are going through an IPO process, and maybe smaller companies, and you know, they're just starting to get funding. That's where I've really seen these, because they get into very complex transactions uh, with like VCs, and some of the clauses in there that you maybe don't realise trigger something, and then it's such a big change if you thought something's equity and then it suddenly just you know totally changes to debt, change your whole financial statements. Okay, so what what can you tell our listeners? Like how do we spot them if you are in that position? As
1: soon as you have more than one class of equity, the red flag should already go up. Specifically preference shares. I cannot tell you how many of those have actually resulted in debt, even though the company actually never intended them to be debt. But it doesn't always mean that. You know, only contracts that set out the terms and conditions of an instrument would have these features. Sometimes even business combinations, we found written put options, shareholders' agreements that give the rights to a particular shareholder to put back the shares. They're very common and just something to be very careful of.
0: Okay, so, you know, if you've got, say, you'll often see like Class A shares, Class B shares, automatically you're saying, what are the conditions attached to those shares so I can think through the process in the literature? So, thinking about that, you said earlier, you know, it's an unconditional right. What what is the relevant literature we need to look for, and what more can you tell us about that?
1: At the moment, I s thirty two still governs and defines what equity is. So, even though IFRS nine has been issued, we still have I s thirty two, and we still look at the guidance in I s thirty two. So, going back to my earlier discussion, equity is basically the residual in the assets of an entity after deducting the liability. So understanding what is a liability is quite crucial. And there's quite a lot of guidance in IS32 as to what is a liability. And it really goes back to, do I have an unconditional right to avoid delivery cash or financial assets?
0: Okay, so what's important then about this unconditional piece?
1: Well, this one can actually be a nasty requirement. And I know preference (laughs) shares are actually typically the ones that get tripped up here. But sometimes we write into a contract that will only make payments on the occurrence or non-occurrence of an event. And sometimes those events are neither in the control of either the issuer or the holder of that instrument. Examples of those are, you know, we'll only make payments if there's a change in the market price or interest rates. You know, sometimes it's even linked to revenue. The question then comes in, well, is that a debt instrument? And r two says, well, if you can't control it, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's still a liability from day one. And I think that's the one that we see the most. So let's look at an example which we've seen. If a preference share includes an obligation to pay 10% of profits, this would probably be considered a liability. And that's because the payment of the liability, even though it's contingent on profits, can't be avoided if those profits are earned. And so be very, very careful of those. Where we've also seen many, you know, issues is around when we write clauses in around successful RPOs, or a change in control, for example. Now, even again, those haven't happened, but this could trigger payments of that particular preference share or she.
0: Yeah, that successful IPA one. I'm not joking. I've had. That discussion so many times of people are saying, "But I could choose not to IPO, so surely that's in my control." But I think the successful IPO piece is totally out of your control, um, and really, definitely want to look out for. I've seen lots of uh, people trip up on that one. Sorry, oh, on, yeah.
1: before you go on, I just do want to mention that in this guidance it says if it's only tripped up on liquidation, obviously yeah. you wouldn't look at it. But there's another requirement that says, well, it also if it's non-genuine, you would actually ignore that clause just be very careful. Non-genuine is extremely a high hurdle, and it actually says it's extremely rare, highly abnormal, and very unlikely to occur. Now, I'd really struggle to see us writing a clause into a contract if it's non-genuine. extremely rare, <laughs> highly abnormal, yeah. and very you know unlikely to
0: occur. So, in your career, Helen, have you ever seen a non-genuine clause? No. Okay, (laughs) so we're very rare, (laughs) Um, but it is in the standard. So from what you've told me, I feel like everything's liability. Do we ever get to equity?
1: Yeah, we do sometimes. Um, We, you know, non-redeemable perpetual preference shares with discretionary dividends, those we do see. As long as it's never redeemable and I can always avoid, you can get there. You can also get there if you issue a fixed number of shares to settle that obligation.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit more about settling in shares.
1: Well, you can't always say because I'm settling in shares that it's, it's equity because it really depends on how and and the terms of it, again, come, become very important. So by way of an example, if I have an instrument that I settle fixed number of shares or fixed amount of cash, those are okay. I think where it becomes quite challenging is when we settle in a variable number of shares. So you'll often hear this technical accountants referring to fixed for fixed. Yeah. Now, we don't really have enough time today to go down that topic, but I would caution people to be very careful of put options. That, you know, even though you put in a fixed number of shares and it's a fixed amount of cash, those are problematic.
0: Okay. And that's almost just to give the listeners a little bit. It's like you're sort of using your shares as a currency and therefore you trip back into liability accounting.
1: Yeah, so the the one set of guidance is obviously the written puts and forwards on your own shares. Yeah. And those are, you know, monsters we have a on the other podcast. <laughs> we definitely can. But yeah, where you settle the variable number of shares the reason behind that is you can actually then take those variable number of shares and liquidate them in the market and get the cash to the value of, you know, that liability.
0: Okay, so another another thing to look out for, it still feels like nothing's equity. I'd almost tell listeners what I've taken away from this is assume you've got a liability and then maybe work backwards and hope you've got equity. <laughs> and so leaving sort of the last final bits, what are your top tips for detection? Okay this
1: is going to sound like a cliche yeah. but in this particular case the devil is really in the detail. You honestly miss one clause and you can get the classification incorrect. As I mentioned up front it's it's not something you want to
0: get wrong to be yeah. honest. I must admit some of my most excruciating stories in the world of accounting have been about equity. <laughs> so uh, if I can tell anything to the listeners it you know it is really important. So all of this, we talked about IS32. IS32 isn't going anywhere with the introduction of IFRS 9, but is the board doing anything in this area?
1: Well, I think we all acknowledge it's really tricky and it's something that the board has actually picked up as a project. We're anticipating a discussion paper on FAS, as we refer to it, and FAS stands for Financial Instruments with the Characteristics of Equity. We should receive discussion paper as I mentioned in the first half of twenty eighteen, and the board has already discussed a lot of this advice project and made some key decisions around the approach that's going to be used but obviously you know it is only a discussion paper and it's subject to a lot of change. We're really looking forward to the outcome of this project.
0: Okay even the title financial Instruments with characteristics of equity is a mouthful so I'm really looking forward to reading the discussion paper but I must admit even looking at the board agenda it's been discussed for a long time now hasn't it so really hope that uh, helps us in this tricky area. So, our parting thought, you've given us some really good things to look out for in terms of classification. Once we've decided if it's debt or equity, then how difficult is it? Is that easy? <laughs> well, I think if it's equity, it's easy. Yeah. Because it's in Because <laughs> you never remeasure it. Yeah.
1: Uh, debit cash, credit equity. Yeah. But if it's a liability, then you land up in I City 9 or IFRS 9. Yeah. And so you then get into the recognition and measurement thereof in that standard. And as you know, that's not always that easy. So from a liability perspective, remember, we still have embedded derivative guidance on debt instruments we need to consider. And those would need to be accounted for separately. I guess what I would really like to say to the listeners today is it's probably best to consult on these matters.
0: Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Helen, for joining us. So a little bit of a wrap up what I've taken away from today is, you know, lots of things are debt. So we're in the scope of IS32. Just check First off, you're not in the scope of IFRS 2. And then look at, do you have a control over being uh, be able to pay the cash? So is there an unconditional right uh, to avoid the cash? Um, otherwise, you've got a liability. And even where the measurement of that gets tricky, so embedded derivatives Well, again, we've got a whole podcast on IFRS 9 you can listen to. So thanks for joining us. Any If you'd like any more information on that, please visit our website on pwc.com forward slash IFRS. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Coopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisers.